0: It's time for us to reject the tech frontier mine. It's time for us to stand in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en and it's time for us to end the clutches of dirty oil economies.
1: You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Elizabeth Dowdell
2: and my name is Sonic Patel. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news and stories.
1: Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. Treaty is about relationships and respect.
2: In this episode, we'll get a glimpse of what it means to live in relationship with each other, both people and the environment. While you listen, I encourage you to stop and really listen and then think about where you find guidance and what true leadership looks like when it comes to living with care and respect for each other and the planet. Ask yourself what sort of future is desirable to you and what action you can take to make it our shared reality.
1: This week, we are bringing you the second part of an interview with Ariel DeRanger co-founder and executive director of indigenous climate action who we caught up with at the university of alberta sustainability summit on february
2: 1st in last week's episode we shared a background on mining company tech resources limited and Earl explained why the proposed frontier oil sands mine should be rejected just before we aired that episode the reject tech campaign tasted sweet sweet victory sort of
1: Uh, The Frontier project was not actually rejected by Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, but was instead withdrawn from the approval process by the company itself. In an unexpected letter released Sunday, February 23rd, unexpected by Terra Informers at least, uh, Tech Resources pulled the plug on the project. Some choice statements from the letter, signed by Tech President and CEO Don Lindsay, include, quote, Global capital markets are changing rapidly, and investors and customers are increasingly looking for jurisdictions to have a framework in place that reconciles resource development and climate change. Questions about the societal implications of energy development, climate change, and Indigenous rights are critically important ones for Canada, its provinces, and Indigenous governments to work through. The promise of Canada's potential will not be realized until governments can reach agreement around how climate policy considerations will be addressed in the context of future responsible energy sector development. Without clarity on this critical question, the situation that is faced Frontier will be faced by future projects and will be very difficult to attract future investment, either domestic or foreign." End quote.
2: Essentially, tech is suggesting Canada and Alberta need to figure out their climate plans and come to some agreement, so fossil fuel companies, and the financial organizations that lend money to build these projects know what to expect with regard to permitting and other environmental approvals to secure their investments.
1: Or at least that's one take on the meaning of the letter. There has also been suggestion that, as Ariel explained in last week's episode, the economics of the project just didn't make sense. Tech applied to develop an open pit mine. That is a big project in terms of infrastructure and footprint, and it's expensive to build. When Tech submitted their plan, it was projected with oil prices of US $95 per barrel, with a high and low case scenario of US $115 per barrel or US $75 per barrel. But in 2020, the price of oil is sitting at just around $50 per barrel.
2: Whether it was the economics, probably, jurisdictional uncertainty, possibly, or a foreign-funded plot by eco-terrorists in collusion with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to destroy the Alberta oil and gas industry, sorry Canadian Energy Centre, but probably not, the project is, for the moment, on hold.
1: This letter mentions Indigenous rights, but over the span of a few paragraphs, the author goes back to talking about the promise of Canada's resource potential, as if the land under which these oil and gas deposits lie, or the land over which the transport infrastructure for these projects will be built, somehow belongs fair and square to the state of Canada with no prior occupants or rights holders or sovereign nations. Reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people and between Indigenous people in the state of Canada and how that might impact certainty or uncertainty for fossil fuel project development does not get any page space.
2: So yes, tech rejected itself last week. Yet the interview that we'll share with you today is deeply relevant still because it covers themes that include the ongoing way we approach resource projects, the environment, and each other across this country. As co-founder and executive director of Indigenous Climate Action, Duranger is organizing and campaigning about more than one oil sands mine. Indigenous Climate Action is an indigenous climate justice organization. That means working to put indigenous rights and leadership front and center in a climate transition strategy that protects the land, water, and resources we all rely on.
1: So let's hear what a climate transition strategy looks like from Ariel now.
0: So, my name is Ariel Tseekwe Deranger and I'm a member of the Athabasca Chipewyan First Nation and I'm the executive director and co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action. I think like one of the things that we're really looking in is like how do we develop a just transition for this region that has so many years of a oil and gas economy locked into not just like the jobs of everyday people but into our social infrastructure, our hospitals, our schools, our our sports and recreation, our indigenous cultural revitalization projects, they're all underwritten by the oil and gas industry. You know, through this sort of community giving platform that's been created by this sector. And so a just transition requires us to dig deep. It requires us to like look at like how do we not just shift jobs and energy systems? But how do we shift an entire social structure that's dependent on an industry that is contributing to the degradation of our health, of our environment? And that's no easy task. Mm -hmm. I think that, again, like I said, the first step is not approving new projects. The second step is taking the time and resources to really mapping out what a just transition looks like. What is the role of the government, both provincially and nationally, in assisting this region in getting off of a dirty fossil fuel Uh, industry and economy and how do we look at including and upholding the rights of Indigenous communities while developing those economic systems because those communities have been put into a situation where those royalties those very small royalties because Alberta negotiated the worst royalties in the world for oil and gas are not even trickling back to our communities the only way that First Nation uh, and, and Métis communities receive any benefit from these from this sector is through private proprietary agreements that are negotiated between the corporations and the indigenous communities themselves. That is an indication of the fiduciary failure of our governments to uphold the rights and the protection of those rights in the development or the pursuit of this economic you know, system or oil and gas. And so they're failing. So that's one. First off, we've got to address that. Government has failed indigenous communities. Second piece is they're failing everyday albertans albertan citizens by creating a boom bust economic system that is we're already feeling the the clutches of through the economic downturn in the price of oil and they're not putting any resources or effort into looking at a true just transition in the region and they also need to be looking at the fact that they've negotiated such a poor royalty that we are now dependent on this, this industry to pay for education, health, sports and recreation, indigenous rights protection. It is absurd. Like this whole system is absurd. And it's going to take a lot to get us out. It's going to take a lot, a lot of political will, a lot of capital, and a lot of the people are going to have to come together to recognize that this is unsustainable, not just for the environment and for indigenous communities, but for everyday people. And that is is going to just be so difficult. And, you know, I I just also want to say, like, you know, this whole touting of these impact-benefit agreements and the First Nations that want to see this economy, again, like 60-plus years, no projects ever denied and you put those communities in a position where they're being offered massive amounts of money to participate in an economic system that has degraded and eroded their rights. These these agreements are often like gag orders. They state that if you, upon signing these agreements, that you are gonna bring any of your concerns directly to the proponent or the company, which is essentially a silencing. And the last piece is that these agreements are also often the place where Indigenous communities go because we're so shut out of the regulatory processes that the only way for us to find the best available information is to become partners with, this, with the company to sort of have any kind of impact or effect on any kind of mitigation of our concerns that we bring forward because they're not addressed through the current regulatory system. And these 14 indigenous communities that have signed agreements for this particular project, I just need listeners to know this. They keep saying 14 indigenous communities have signed agreements. Of these 14 indigenous communities, only four are First Nations. And these are four First Nations with treaty and inherent rights uh, to the land to the resources and to actual benefits from the industry the other uh, 10 are metis communities and i'm not saying metis people don't have rights they do but they are much less when it comes to their rights to determine what happens to the lands and resources because they did not sign treaty agreements in the region so there's less of a right to those metis communities and of those four first nations only two of those communities are downstream from this project the other two first nations are upstream which means that the impacts of this project are very minimal. And then there's only two Métis communities that are downstream as well. So four of the 14 are downstream, and the other 10 are upstream and have limited rights to the project. So this is a misrepresentation wholly, and it's also a misrepresentation when we get those voices to come on the radio to say, yep, we agree with this project because they're bound to that agreement. And if they were to say otherwise, they'd be in breach of their agreement.
1: So you have, you know, 14 communities, but each one of those communities has its own gag order, non-disclosure agreement. So whatever the benefits are they've received, they can't talk about it with anyone else. There's no capacity for standing together, for acting together, for moving in solidarity, for creating sort of power through collective action. It is community are either in or out. If you're out, you get nothing and everyone around you will benefit. Oh, you you don't
0: get nothing. You get the impacts of impact. You You get (laughs) more than nothing. Yeah. (laughs) You get the increased uh, contamination of the water, land and air. Uh, You get the increase of emissions. You get the degradation to your ecosystems like you get the impacts without any of the benefit. I mean, we're the government is in itself is so yeah. essentially assigning their own impact benefit agreements with these companies through like, OK, so how much are you lending are going to be giving to the Stollery or to the U of A or to the you know, Mount Royal or to like health services or whatever, you know, like these 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 corporations are huge donors mm-hmm. to every social infrastructure fabric of this of this province. Um, and it's time we get off not just of oil, and particularly dirty oil, but off of this really twisted and perverted relationship we have with this sector.
1: You've talked very much about not just First Nations or other Indigenous peoples, but the everyday Albertan as well. Can we talk a little bit about what healing might mean in a big picture or any way it sort of strikes you? And maybe we can... Speak about healing, solidarity, allyship, and mm-hmm. how those are all sort of pieces that maybe come together. What yeah. are your thoughts there?
0: You know, I think part of the healing is there have been so many reports in this country. We, you know, the most recent one is the Truth and Reconciliation and the 93 recommendations that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation process. And I think the TRC recommendations are a good starting point for a lot of folks. That's part of healing. But real truth and reconciliation isn't going to come from, you know, apologies and having dinners with people. True reconciliation is going to come from us looking at the fact that Indigenous peoples have been robbed of our ability to be real leaders in this country. We don't have the ability to manage our lands and territories. You know, 0.2% of Canada's land mass is reserves uh, and reserve systems, and the other 99.8% of the land is considered crown land under the full jurisdiction of the government. And so we don't even have control over our territories, which we signed treaty agreements to share the lands. We're not sharing them. True reconciliation is about giving that land back, to the control and the management of our lands and territories back. It's not a Supreme Court of Canada decision stating that First Nations don't have a veto power or that, you know, the RCMP are going to continue to invade the Wet'suwet'en who are standing up in their traditional hereditary lands and territories with hereditary leadership and governance. It's none of those things. Real truth and reconciliation and healing comes from a recognizing that colonial systems and laws and governance and education and languages are not the only systems like let's be real there are other forms of governance there are other forms of education there are other languages besides in this country or this colonial uh, state English and French, there is Dene and there is multiple dialects of Dene and there is Cree and there is like Nuchalnith and Anishinaabe and then there's Plains Cree and Swampy Cree and Woodland Cree and there's like, you know, so on and so on, and the Migmagi and Maliseet and there's, you know, Haudenosaunee and there's just so many rich languages and cultures and each one of those places comes with their own sets of governance and laws and that real reconciliation and real healing begins by recognizing those as valid and then starting to start and 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 simultaneously not and then and recognizing that we have already demonstrated through history and through millennia our ability to steward and manage our lands in responsible ways, and that we actually had thriving economies and trade routes throughout North America before colonization. Like there's this misnomer that we were just wildly living on the land, but the reality is is they were massive economic trade routes Mm -hmm. that existed throughout the entire continent of North America and into South America, trading foods, trading goods and services and these things existed and they existed while managing and stewarding the lands and territories and modeling low carbon lifestyles absolutely we live in 2020 we live in the future there's all sorts of technologies you know medicine um, transportation and we can merge those emerging technologies with indigenous ways of knowing and relating to the lands and governance and that is a part of healing and that is, in its, in a nutshell, that is like the foundations of decolonization. And there's this really powerful movement called, like, Land Back. And everyone's like, Land Back. You know, it's like some people go to land acknowledgments. So we want to, be, oh, we acknowledge that this is it. And then people be like, Land Back. You know, uh, today's land acknowledgment was beautiful. And it talked about that. It talked about we just can't say, hey, we acknowledge you exist because That's nice, but that doesn't actually address the inequities that our communities have felt for years, um, for, for centuries. And we need to start addressing the fact that we have demonstrated so much economies, language, education, land management, and our abilities to have relationships with the lands and, and moving, and it's also indigenous rights or collective rights. Whereas like most people live in this hyper-individuality, which is a foundation of white supremacy and people get really triggered when I say that, but white supremacy is a system. It's not an individual, it's a system and a structure that is predicated on hyper-individuality, accumulation of wealth, shrouded in race and, and colorism. And so we really look at like how those hyper-individual systems allow us to get into this hyper-competition with one another. Whereas Indigenous communities work in collectives. They collectively live in communities and they collectively harvest from the land and they collectively trade it along uh, trade routes and economic systems. And how do we re-envision a future that looks at implementing those is part of that uh, as a part of the the, the future is a part of that healing process it's a part of like how settlers can just be like okay so this system that i've been a part of has benefited me but Check. How, <laughs> but how has it not benefited others and how can we change the system it's not going to come from passing a bill that says we recognize the un declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples it's going to come from putting those things into practice Including the 93 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation, including the full implementation of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We have to accept the fact that there are hereditary chiefs, not just elected chief and council systems. It's going to take the fact that First Nations and Indigenous communities have a right to determine what happens to their lands and territories, and that even our education systems are not perfect, and that we need to recognize indigenous knowledge systems and indigenous education systems and indigenous knowledge just wholly, whether that's the you know science and facts and data, is just as valid as the current colonial white supremacist systems that we have lived under for the last 150 plus years under the colonial state of Canada. And that is part of that healing process. And as settlers, it's just recognizing, and I always say having humility, your systems and your structures are are fallible, and they're not going. You're not going to find the answers to healing or reconciliation within those colonial structures. And we have to break those walls and recognize that there are other things that need to be included in that container. And then there we can start to heal, and there we can start to build the future that we that actually addresses equity and justice for all.
1: For any other sort of settler listeners out there, is this idea of complicity that you know you are complicit in these systems, but you know, learning that knowledge and exploring that is something to do with some kindness for yourself that you kind of have to forgive, to heal, to move on, Mm -hmm. to grow, to change. So, you know, be kind and recognizing, yeah, you're complicit. You're a part of the system. You, me, um, any
0: other settler out there listening. Absolutely. But you grow through that system and you can grow past that system. We need co-conspirators. You know, like the, the, the onus and the burden to change these structures should not be on those that have least benefited from them and that these structures were never created to benefit us at all. We need settler allies. We need settler allies to to look at their complicity, but also to the fact that we can all benefit from structural change. And, and indigenous peoples have also uh, benefited in in small ways from you know well I would not say benefited we have also been complicit in upholding these structures that's the word I'm looking for we've been complicit in in uh, in holding up these structures including oil and gas economies including some of these structures through like chief and council systems and the, the AFN and we really need to take a look hard look on our, at ourselves because we do live in a colonial state with imposed colonial systems and structures of of uh, governance and education and all of those things. And we have to find a way to sort of, just like in Alberta, we have to find a way to release the clutches of the oil and gas economy on a whole larger level. We need to release our clutches of this colonial Eurocentric ideology of what it means to govern and manage and educate our people. We need to return to some basic understandings that like colonization is predicated on the system of like doctrine of discovery, terra nullis, and man's dominion over nature and the reality is is that science is is validating all the time that humans do not it's not man's dominion over nature. We are a part of the, of nature. Indigenous peoples have been have known this and recognized this since time immemorial. You know, growing up for me was I was raised to understand that from the blade of grass, to the dirt and the rocks, to the trees, to the birds, the animals, to the fish in the water, to the sky, to the clouds, to the moon, to the sun. All of these things are my relations. These things are all my relations. And these are, we are related to these things. These are a part of who we are. When you're good to the land, the land is good to you. All of these sort of basic foundations of relationships, not just with other humans but relationships with the natural world. Those relationships are the foundation of our governance and our law structures, our economic systems, our education. What Eurocentric values are is they have separated humanity from nature. And part of decolonization is the connection, like the return of and the connection to land. That is what it is in its foundation. And so as settlers, return your connection to land. Return your connection to nature, and then you'll start to see Indigenous cultures and Indigenous ways of knowing and being as not something that is against settler society. But is it a part of returning ourselves back to this relationship, not just with one another as settler Indigenous folks, but our relationship with the natural world?
1: Beautiful. Thank you.
0: <laughs> is there anything else you want to add yeah, or talk I think, about? Or? I think just like to en- to wrap it up, you know, talking a lot about indigenous ways of knowing and being and sort of pulling us back into this reject tech thing is that um, I think it's really important that as settlers, we don't just like reconnect ourselves with the sort of mystical, like natural relationships. But what are the ways we can be co-conspirators um, in, in challenging these systems? And I think like tech, Wet'suwet'en and the coastal gas link, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Keystone XL, Line 3, some of these energy infrastructures they're not the be-all end-all because there are all sorts of battles that are happening everywhere but these energy paradigms are locking us into these structures and standing and being a co-conspirator with indigenous folks supporting the the assertion of indigenous rights and sovereignty or in the case of tech where we don't have like a lot of like elected leaders standing up but we do you know, Smith's Landing is absolutely an elected leadership and we should stand with them but the grassroots communities that are saying enough is enough Like we need to stand in solidarity with Indigenous rights, Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous lifeways and pathways. I think like we need to stand up to send a clear message, not just to tech resources, uh, but to the government that they need to take real action and move in the right way. You can contact your MP, um, your cabinet minister under the Liberal government to, to say like, reject the tech frontier mine. Uh, You can write letters to Minister Wilkinson. You can go to the rejecttech.com website and sign on to an open letter to Minister Wilkinson. 350, Greenpeace, Green Party, like Lead Now, all stand. All these organizations all have petitions uh, to say it's time for us to reject this project. And I think that this can be part of that first step to healing. That first step to recognizing that we don't have to put communities, First Nation or otherwise, in Alberta in a position where they feel like they have to be a champion and cheerleader to the oil and gas sector uh, and start to open the door to the conversations about what a just transition looks like. It's time for us to reject the tech frontier mine. It's time for us to stand in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en and it's time for us to end the clutches of dirty oil economies.
2: Thank you to Ariel for sharing her knowledge and experience and spelling out for us and our listeners what it means to live in relationship with each other and the environment. While the fight to reject tech is now done, there are currently and will continue to be many more times and places where we need to stand in solidarity, recognize indigenous leadership and push together for a more just and livable future. As Ariel said, we need co-conspirators.
1: This co-conspirator can't help but notice how the media coverage around the Tech Resources letter has worked to draw attention away from wet sweat and Solidarity actions and the recent use of RCMP and local police forces to break up peaceful and effective protest at rail blockades across the country. We'll talk more about these stories soon, which are news, but are also in many ways just history repeating itself.
2: Thank you to Terror Informa Carter Krizitza for generously producing last week and this week's episode. And shout out to Lucas Burroughs for the fresh music and sounds. Terra Informa is entirely volunteer-run, and we survive because of generous donations to our host studio, CJSR 88.5 FM.
1: If you like what you heard today, have a comment or question, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, tweet us at Terra Informa, or find us on Facebook and Instagram.
2: Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week when we talk about climate grief right here on Terra Informa.